Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is part two of the University and Airlines series on this podcast. You may want to listen to part one if you haven't already, as I will be referencing several talking points from that episode in this part two. If you'd like to get updates about what my podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show on Patreon. Any donation level helps. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer until we, before we get into this episode. This case is so far ranks right up there with the Golden State Killer in terms of the amount of information out there about uh, the crimes, the investigation, and the suspect. As a result, there are a lot of conflicting reports out there in certain aspects. So I did my best to try to vet that information and get to the actual source to see if that that information is accurate or not before I put it into the episode itself. However, there is a chance that I missed some items or chose the wrong side of two different reports and if that's the case i apologize in advance i'm doing my best i can to put together an accurate podcast here but that being said let's get into the introduction here so forensic linguistics is at its most simple definition a method of analyzing language used by someone to determine their involvement or lack of involvement in a certain crime a more subjective field like behavioral analysis it doesn't have the power of fingerprints or dna but it is a useful tool for investigators to look at someone's communications, written or oral, to identify unique characteristics. Forensic linguistics has been employed in some of the most high-profile true crime cases. For example, the almost 150-year-old Jack the Ripper's letters to the police have been subject to analysis by forensic linguists to compare writing styles to popular suspects from the time. But it was thanks to a 35,000-word manuscript called the Industrial Society and its future, that would later be dubbed the Unabomber Manifesto, that the unique writing style of one man would bring the FBI to his remote Montana cabin and bring an end to the 18-year reign of terror from his bombings. The task force behind the investigation of the Unabomber was formed in 1979 after the failed attempt to take down the American Airlines Flight 444. Originally, the bombings fell to the USPS inspectors as the first bomb was a package that was supposed to be mailed. The bomb was made of scraps and they dubbed it the junkyard bomber. But as the FBI handles terrorism investigations, they likely would have seen the airline attack as an attempt by a foreign terrorist organization. But after the bomb that injured the president of American Airlines, they must have realized they were dealing with something different. Terrorism relies on the belief that you can use fear via acts of violence to change a pattern of belief or structure, such as a government. Foreign terrorists are often striking out against their perceived idea that the Western world is evil and wrong, and as they lack the power to wipe out the Western world, they commit random acts of violence against large groups of innocents to bring attention to their cause and build support amongst their believers. While taking down an airplane full of people fits this goal, a randomly mailed bomb in a book to target one guy, even the president of an airline, does not. As a result, the task force likely would have shifted gears at this point, and soon after, the FC metal parts started showing up in bombs. As we dissect the case, what's hard for us to understand now is that a lot of the times we were talking about months and sometimes years between bombings, and these bombings have very little in the way of forensics. Investigators would have the exploded and unexploded bombs to be used as clues for the investigators, mainly how the devices were made and the materials used to build their components. However, these materials, for the most part, are common and available items and therefore difficult to track. The bomber also went to great lengths to disguise anything 
that was potentially identifiable in the bombs. He would strip batteries of their skins to hide the make of the battery, and he used melted deer resin as a homemade glue so chemical analysis would not allow investigators to trace the make of the adhesive, and no DNA or fingerprints were ever recovered. The bomber would also often leave false clues behind, such as in one of the unexploded bombs, he left a note that said, Woo, as in W-U, it works, I told you it would, dash R-V. What the FBI task force did have was the similarities in victims and a theme within the bombs and the targets. The bombs mainly targeted academics in the fields of technology, or it would target someone in the airline industry. The bombs, and in some cases even the targets, had a theme of wood to them. For example, the president of American Airlines was Percy Wood, and the BYU electrical engineering professor that was believed to have been targeted was named Leroy Wood Burnson. He was the one that was suspected to be targeted by the package with the canceled postage that was somehow actually mailed to Penn State and Vanderbilt before injuring a secretary. However, it was believed that Leroy Burnson was the actual intended target as he was the return address with the package with canceled postage. In addition to the names, most of the bombs were also either made inside of a wood box or placed inside of a wooden structure. Wood is not the most ideal casing for a bomb, as it doesn't have the damage capabilities of metal, so the bombs could have been more deadly, but the bomber liked to include wood in his bombs. But back to my main point, this is not the East Area Rapist. He is not committing three to four crimes a month in a small geographical area. The bombings are spread out over time and all across the country. However, based on the delivery methods of a few of the bombs, some theories about the location of the bomber were developed. The first four bombings in 1978 through 1980 all occurred in the Chicago area. The first two bombs were left on college campuses with no sign of attempted mail delivery. The airplane bomb was a mail parcel from Chicago to DC and the letter and the package sent to Percy Wood were mailed from the Chicago area. From 1981 and on, the bombings have mail origins in the Utah or California area and are left at locations in California and Utah. The FBI theorized that these are all locations known to and or lived in by the bomber either at some point in his life or during the timing of the bombings. An early profile in 1983 by John Douglas with the FBI Behavioral Unit stated the male had above average intelligence and connections to academia. It would later be updated to state he would be found to oppose technology and have a degree in the hard science, sciences. However, this profile would be abandoned by the FBI soon after and replaced with one profiling the suspect as a disgruntled airline mechanic. After the infamous 1987 composite sketch came out, there was a six-year lull in the bombings. As we've talked about before, investigators had to think there was a likelihood that the suspect was arrested or dead. Despite having a lot of non-identifying evidence, they didn't have much else of anything definitive to work with. This would all change in the early 90s when the bomber resurfaced and started communication with the newspapers. A criminal profile at the FBI named James R. Fitzgerald was working on the task force. It was 1995 and the suspect had just killed his last two bombing victims and everyone wanted to arrest this guy and get him locked up before anyone else was hurt or killed. As the letters started pouring in, Fitzgerald applies a combination of his profiling skills and for forensic linguistics to the letters. However, it would be the 35,000 word manuscript known as the manifesto that was the gold mine for investigators. With this manuscript in hand, Fitzgerald had all the data he needed to to develop a profile of the bomber to include his possible age, race, some early demographics information, and other things. For example, it was thought early on that the bomber was a college-age student in 1978 when the bombs were dropped off on the campus of Northwestern University. This would have made him around 18 to 24 years old in 1978. However, the real suspect was actually 36 years old at the time. In the manifesto, the writer used terminology from the 50s that had since been mostly abandoned by 1995. This didn't line up with someone born in the early 60s, as they would have developed a language base roughly 15 years after this language was in common use. The writer referred to women as chicks and broads and African Americans as Negroes. 
language well out of use in 1995 and maintained in the vocabulary of someone born pre-1950. Secondly, there was language in the manifesto that pointed towards the area the suspect grew up in. Every region of America has its own take on pulp on pop culture items. A can of soda can be a Coke, a soda, a pop, etc., depending on where they grew up. And certain dialect, even in written form, can narrow it down further to a sub-region or culture that uses terminology different than else, anyone else in America. In the case of the Unabomber, he used language consistent with Chicago in the 1940s and 50s as if he grew up reading the famous newspaper writers of that era. As humans, we tend to learn a way of speaking and writing as youth, and while we may add our vocabulary over time, we often fall back to those fundamental speech and writing patterns we developed during our childhood and teens. So FBI profilers now had an idea of an age and other demographics of who they were looking for. Based on the antisocial methods of, method of attacks, the use of basic components in the bomb, and the disdain for technology, it wasn't hard to surmise the suspect was a loner that had likely isolated himself from society. It was after reading the manifesto that the FBI profilers like Fitzgerald suggested the newspapers run the manifesto, and this would accomplish a few things. For one, they believed the suspect lived in the Northern California and Utah area. The Washington Post, which is the newspaper that agreed to run the manifesto, was only available in four locations in San Francisco. They determined the suspect would likely want to at least confirm the manifesto was printed, and in the days before the internet took off, it, that meant that he would have to physically see and or purchase a copy from one of these locations. On the day the manifesto was printed, the locations were watched heavily by undercover agents. One person matched the description of the composite sketch and was followed back to his residence, where his name would be matched to a list of known members of a fringe radical group. But this group was not anything along the lines of FC and the man was ruled out as a suspect. Although this sting operation failed, the release of the manifesto would eventually be the break the task force needed to identify the suspect. A man named David Kaczynski was sitting in Chicago in 1995 and had a terrible feeling in his stomach. His brother, Theodore Kaczynski, was a brilliant but disturbed man who was living in a remote cabin in Montana. During the span of the bombings, David often wondered if his brother could be responsible for the terrible attacks. He had shared these fears with his wife, and she had urged him to do something about it. After the manifesto was printed, David's suspicions were at an all-time high. He hired a private investigator named Susan Swanson to look into his brother's possible involvement. After her investigation was complete, David hired an attorney to organize the evidence and advise him on how to proceed. The attorney himself then hired an investigator who sent samples of Theodore Kaczynski's writing to the FBI to see if they believed there's a link to the manifesto. Initially, the FBI reported a 60% chance it was the same person, and a second analysis returned a higher percentage. The FBI analyst recommended to this investigator that the concerned people should contact the FBI immediately. In February of 1996, the attorney hired by David provided an essay written by Ted in 1971 to the FBI. She forwarded the essay to the task force headquarters in San Francisco, and James Fitzgerald looked it over. He determined the writer of the essay was likely the same as the writer of the manifesto, and then learned the writer lived alone in a remote cabin in the woods, and Fitzgerald knew they had their man, they just needed the source to identify him. This is where I'll take a little aside, because the research went 15 different ways on how this went down. And I'll get into it here in a little bit about why David just didn't just come forward to the FBI with information that his brother was was the Unabomber, but there was a lot of behind-the-scenes work going on here where David was trying to basically confirm that his brother could be the Unabomber without telling the FBI who his brother was or who he was even so that's the reason why these all these lawyers and private investigators are involved is it's degrees of separation away from david and so it actually said in there that it was kind of once the cat was out of the bag 
the FBI is getting these essays from these investigators and they're looking at the essays and saying, we think this is our guy, but we don't know who the source is. And if we don't know who the source is, we don't know who our suspect could be. So while they have writings from the guy, they don't have identifying characteristics from the source or the suspect. So I read there's a lot of stuff going on where investigators then were looking into, I think they had enough information to know that the essays had been written, I believe it was while they were at, this person was at the University of Michigan, and they looked at attendance records or academic records or something like that, and eventually narrowed down on the suspect name before the source came forward, but it was kind of one of those things where they're so desperate to try to find this guy that when something lands on their desk and it's kind of one of those things like we think this is potentially from our guy but we can't tell you how we got this or where this came from they did everything they could to work around that to still try to identify that without getting it from the source itself but going back to the story itself here we will arrive on valentine's day which is february 14th 1996 David, who at this point still wanted to remain anonymous, and his lawyer were contacted by the FBI. And this is as a result of them tracking down the essays at the universities and identifying, I believe they identified then the writer of the essays, and then through sources were able to figure out who the source was. And so the FBI wants to sit down with the source and his lawyer and discuss where these essays came from and why this person believes that the writer of the essays is the same as the Unabomber. So they're going to sit down with David and his lawyer. First thing David's going to say is he does not want the $1 million reward. There's At this point, there's a $1 million reward by the FBI for any information leading to the capture of the Unabomber. David vehemently says i am i don't want the reward money this is not about the reward money and he tells the fbi that the reason all of this cloak and dagger stuff was going on and why he didn't just come straight up forward is because he fears for his brother's safety and this is because of recent fbi related events in the mid 90s such as waco and ruby ridge we might cover those cases at some point down the road they're not as much true crime as they are kind of I mean, there is crime involved there for sure, but it's it's just something maybe we'll cover when I'm looking to do something a little bit different than your, your typical murder suspect investigation thing. But there's some severe distrust in the mid-90s of the federal government. Some people might say today people have a distrust of the federal government, but the, between Waco and Ruby Ridge, it, this was mainstream culture in the mid-90s, we had a form, for, the formation of several large militias, uh, armed militias in areas such as Montana and, and Colorado and Idaho and, and these areas. So it was, it was a very turbulent time, and the federal government was seen as this bully organization that was going in and just murdering Americans any time that they didn't toe the line with the federal government. So it does make sense that David is going to be in an effort to protect his brother. The last thing he wants to do is say, yeah, hey, uh, I think my brother's been you know, blowing people up and he's living in this cabin off in the, in the woods of Montana. Just, just go get him because I'm sure David thought that's going to end one of many ways and all of them are terrible. So, so David's going to tell the FBI that he once looked up to his bigger brother and that they had bought this land together in Montana as a place to live off the grid and survive if need be. But his brother's views had gotten too extreme and they caused a rift between uh, his brother and himself and kind of the rest of the family to a certain degree. There was a lot of information out there in regards to during this entire time of the bombing, there's communication with the family, there's some visits from his family out to this, but there's also some issues where I think David realized that his brother might be up to some stuff that wasn't entirely legal and was trying to get his name taken off of the property that 
that his brother lived on. So there was some stuff going on behind the scenes during the, the 70s and 80s with this property. David continued to want to remain anonymous. That was a big another big thing about it is, is he didn't want any notoriety from this. He didn't want people to know that he was the one that, that said anything. And plus, at this time, the FBI hasn't released any of this information to the general public or the, the news media because they want to try to get Ted Kaczynski alive in his cabin in Montana. And the last thing they need is for a whole bunch of news trucks to show up at the place and and uh, Kaczynski to go on the run or more people are harmed or killed because he's aware that people are looking for him. So David wants to remain anonymous. The FBI is more than happy to acquiesce to that request. However, somebody at the FBI who's unknown to this day, there was an investigation and they weren't able to determine where it was, but leaked the information to CBS News. And I know the FBI first smoothed it over with CBS News and kind of said, this is a, you know, matter of national security please don't release this stuff but then there was a, another article in there about how dan rather uh, the anchorman for cbs evening news had called the fbi and basically said can i break the story and i'd like to have a crew there it in montana when you arrest this guy because this is big news i mean this was 18 years and most especially in the last couple years prior to this so in the 93 to 95 time frame it's huge news with the Oklahoma City bombing and Waco and whatnot like everybody is just eating up this extreme anti-government stuff that's going on so CBS is is jumping to try to get the the break on this story and the FBI says please give us 24 hours and then we'll let you break the story so now investigators that or the FBI that's in Montana and is getting set up runs and gets a search warrant for this cabin in Montana and realizes they have to execute it within 24 hours so they get the search warrant on April 3rd of 1996 and they have to decide then how to serve the warrant and to prevent the Ruby Ridge type situation of walking up with armed federal agents identifying themselves and potentially getting into a shootout with the suspect or having the suspect blow himself up inside the cabin, they decide they're going to go up there in an undercover capacity and they pretend to be representatives of a mining company. And this is because they knew that Kaczynski was mad that this mining company had been talking about putting a road through for, with heavy equipment and, and that uh, to get to some land that they had bought mining rights to. So they, they basically dressed as if they were like, surveyors with this mining company. And when they approached the cabin, they just kind of, you know, made some type of announcement like, hey, if anybody's in the cabin, you know, we're just worth the mining company. I'd like to chat, chat with you. And Gazinski comes out of the cabin. And now they're able to create a, just a tiny bit of distance between him and the cabin. They approach him and tell him that they're there with the mining company because they want to bring some heavy equipment through. And whether Kaczynski feels that something's not right or whether he's mad because now these guys, he's confirmed that these guys are the mining company, whatever it is, he starts to act like he's going to go back into the cabin. And they grab onto him, tell him he's, they're with the FBI, he's under arrest, and... At that point, this 18-year reign of terror comes to an end. Let's take a second to step aside and figure out who this Theodore Kaczynski was. Now, simply put, Theodore Kaczynski is a model for the evil madman genius. Maybe not a Mary Shelley-inspired guy in a lab coat sewing cadaver parts together and applying electricity to make a monster type, but an evil madman genius nonetheless. So he's born on May 22, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, and his brother David's born two years later. Kaczynski grows up in a working-class Polish family on the south side of Chicago, and by all accounts, he seemed to have a normal childhood. He showed signs of brilliance from a young age, and around age 11, his IQ was tested and he scored a 167, which 
the first person I had to think of to compare it to would be Einstein. So I had them, I just typed in what's Einstein's IQ. Apparently Einstein never had his IQ tested because he didn't believe in it. But for whatever reason, people estimated Einstein to be about a 160 and Kaczynski's scoring a 167. And when I looked at the, did some research into what would be the highest IQs currently in the world. And right now there's several people that are believed to be a 170 and that's the highest scores in the world. So he's, by whatever account, at age 11, he's scoring 167 on his IQ test. As a result of this high IQ test, they're going to skip, choose to skip the sixth grade. And this is a move he would later say changed his life because before the skip, he had many friends and he was considered a social leader. But after the skip, he was bullied by the older children and kind of withdrew from at least social interaction with kids in his classes. However, in high school, he was involved in band and several academic clubs and was part of a group of kids who carried briefcases everywhere that was called the Briefcase Boys. His academic flight continued as he skipped 11th grade and graduated high school at age 15. He was accepted to Harvard at 15 years old and started his studies there at 16 on a full scholarship in 1958. During his second year at Harvard, while 17 years old, he voluntarily participated in a research study run by a former OSS, which would then become the CIA, scientist named Henry Murray. The subjects would write an essay on their thoughts, and then someone would anonymously confront and belittle the essays and the writer of the essays while the electrodes measured brain activity. Conspiracy theorists claim this may have been sanctioned work by the CIA under MKUltra, a Cold War mind control program. Ted would endure 200 years of the study being belittled and verbally abused once a week during the, his last three years at Harvard. He would later claim he resented the study but didn't think it changed his life. He graduated from Harvard in 1962 at the age of 20 with a degree in mathematics. He then applied for graduate studies at UC Berkeley and the University of Chicago. He was accepted to both the schools but they didn't offer him any stipend or financial aid. The University of Michigan accepted him as a grad student and offered him a job worth around $22,000 a year in 2023 money as an assistant professor. I think it was like $2,000 a year back in 1962, but equivalent of $22,000 a year. So he's going to make a little bit of money and be able to do his graduate studies. So he goes to the University of Michigan. He would excel at his grad studies with one of his professors remarking he was the most brilliant mathematician he'd ever taught. He received his master's degree in 1964, and while working on his doctorate in 1966, he would experience feelings of gender dysphoria and make an appointment to meet with a psychiatrist to talk about a possible gender change. He changed his mind while in the waiting area for the psychiatrist and decided not to talk about the sexual fantasies he had about being a woman and instead discussed other topics with the psychiatrist. He would later go on to say that this was a turning point in his life and he suddenly felt angry and homicidal towards people. So I tried to look any further into a couple of these life-changing moments. He's had three of them now, I think, that can't, that really stick out. The skipping of the grades, which I completely understand his take on it, where it's a combination of kids of extremely high intelligence, and I'm not going to generalize everyone here but most of the kids that i grew up with that were extremely intelligent spent a lot of time focusing on their studies it was just a, a driving factor for them there's nothing wrong with that but at it was at the cost of social interaction a lot of them also didn't play sports which again there's nothing wrong with not playing sports but when you play sports you have there's certain life lessons that you learn and develop friendships and you experience high emotions and low emotions in a social setting with others so it's one of those things where so not only is he hyper focused on his studies and his academic excellence he's ostracized by his classmates because he's one or two years younger than than them and likely has this aura of being this ridiculously smart kid that you know and kids are cruel and they're going to make fun of anybody who's different so so i think that him skipping grades and i understand the reason for it i understand that he's going to 
be completely bored in in school if he's going along with everybody else at his age slash grade level but there's there's pluses and minuses to it and i think some of the minuses here really probably did set him up because when even when he gets to harvard some of his classmates at harvard are going to say that he shows up at harvard at 16 years old and it's kind of like his parents just shipped him out there and with just kind of a suitcase and hey good luck and again he's not even old enough to drive when he arrives at, at harvard it's a difficult thing to really measure the how difficult it would be for a kid to leave home at 15 16 years old and start a college life and he's already got some issues with socialization and and that's because he's not with kids his own age and now he's with fully grown adults and he's still 15 or 16 so I definitely think that that played a role in some of his social issues and then he's going to enter into this study where they're you know he's writing essays and people are anonymously and purposefully uh, degrading his writing his thoughts and they're measuring the effect of this negativity on his brain and i and this is again he's 17 years old at the time so his brain is still developing in terms of his connection to other people is and this is happening to him once a week so i just have to imagine that that also played somewhat of a role and then i couldn't find much more information on this but there's nothing prior to 1966 about him having any frustrations with his sexual identity obviously during a time period in which it would be a very difficult thing to live with that struggle without having the support networks that are in place in, in today's world. And it's hard enough for people in today's world to do it, but to do it in 1966. And so, but he rises to the level that he realizes he needs to go talk to a psychiatrist about these feelings and how he, you know, has sexual fantasies about being a woman. And then to turn around and decide that you're just going to bottle up all of that stuff inside of you. And then I didn't really understand he suddenly then becomes angry at the world and angry at the psychiatrist. And I don't know if that was because the psychiat he felt the psychiatrist should have been able to get this stuff out of him. And maybe he felt like the psychiatrist was just, you know, mailing in their, their work. I, I don't know. There was nothing in there to, to say why he suddenly became so angry coming out of this. But he's kind of in a span of less than 10 years there. He's faced all types of mental, emotional type challenges and doesn't seem to have a great way to cope with that or a network of support or anything along those lines. Despite dealing with all this stuff, he's going to go on to get his doctorate and, and Kaczynski's doctoral dissertation actually won an award for the best mathema mathematical dissertation of the year at the University of Michigan. And some would go on to say he was at such an intellectual level that only about a dozen people in the entire country could understand what he wrote in that dissertation. And in 1967, Kaczynski's gonna pack up and head west for a teaching position at UC Berkeley. He would start as acting assistant professor and two years later, he would suddenly quit. And although he had received some negative reviews from students who said he taught straight from the textbook and refused to answer questions, the, his resignation was out of the blue. The chairman of the mathematics department at Berkeley would later write a letter to his advisor at the University of Michigan and say that Kaczynski was shy and all attempts to socialize him within the department had failed. There was, a, there was some more stuff in there about how whatever field Kaczynski was teaching at this point of mathematics was about to become obsolete. And I don't know if that was due to the rise of computers and technology. It just There was a note in there that his specific field of mathematics that he was considered this genius in was basically a dying field because all of the complex mathematical theories and whatnot had been written and solved already so i don't know if it was a writing was on the wall type of a thing for him that there wasn't a future in this field so why stick around but it clearly seemed like you know he had still had the issues with social interaction he was disengaged and seem like something that maybe he thought 
he'd be good at, but then ultimately just decided he didn't want to put up with the stuff. So uh, after leaving California, he moved back to Chicago to live with his parents. His brother David got him a job at a factory where David was a supervisor, and Kaczynski even started to date a woman there, but just a few weeks into the relationship, she abruptly broke things off, and Kaczynski responded by leaving nasty limericks about her around the workplace. And she would later deny there was anything romantic between them, and they just hung out as friends a couple times. And Kaczynski was fired by his brother and moved to a small cabin on the property in Montana that he and his brother had purchased. So the year was 1971, and Kaczynski was living in his cabin. He would bike to the local town and was living life off the grid as best he could. And this was not an atypical lifestyle for this area of Montana at the time, so he didn't really raise much suspicion. The only thing people found odd about him was that when he, when he could find them, he liked to read classic novels in their original language, which was something most of the mountain men like him did not do. Four years later, in 1975, Kaczynski started putting booby traps around his cabin. He started reading books about obscure social political thoughts to include the book The Technological Society by Jacques Ellul. This book aligned with Kaczynski's antisocial and anti-technological views and is thought to be the influence for what would happen for the next 20 years of his life. Now, Kaczynski found more and more that people were encroaching near his land, and for example, in 1983, he'd walked to one of his favorite hiking destinations and found that somebody had built a road right through the middle of it. And this furthered his decision that he was going to strike out against technology. Now, his father did visit him several times during these years, and his father would go on to say that he was impressed by his son's ability to live off the land. However, his father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in 1990 and killed himself later that year. Breaking down, because there's not a lot of information, it's not really well presented in any of the research that I did, like what was going on with Ted Kaczynski at the time these bombings are going on, but I'll do my best to kind of align what I've taken from the research that I've done here is basically I think his bombings all aligned with his hatred towards the ide- whatever idea he was striking out against. So for example, when he left academia, he would have already been witnessing the marriage of mathematics and computers. So this thing that he hates and a thing that he loves, mathematics, is merging with computers, which is technology, which he hates. So his initial targets are going to be academics in the field of computers and technology and this was just his way he had no other way of doing harm to the system than sending these bombs or leaving these bombs for the hatred with airlines i did read somewhere that kaczynski enjoyed the peace and solitude of his cabin but he could never escape the sight of airplanes and their contrails running across the sky above him so it was kind of his way of trying to either end air travel or get back at this thing that he couldn't escape because he's living in this remote utopia of his and he and he's done everything he can so that he doesn't have any signs of modern technology he's got no running water no electricity you know no vehicle anything like that he's not relying on machines except for a, a typewriter that we'll get into later but as for like your major technological advances he's trying to avoid that and no matter how hard he tries he goes for a hike he looks up in the sky and he's going to see an airplane so that was determined to be why he was angry towards airplanes and airlines now as for his later targets he the forestry president that he targeted was lobbying for more trees to be cut down which again is going to upset kaczynski and the ad agent we talked about in part one, working for Exxon Valdez, that, or working with Exxon Valdez to, to recover their public image, is going to be another clear target for somebody who's violated nature. Now, after he was arrested, Kaczynski's cabin was searched and was found to have two loaded deer hunting rifles and a ready-to-go mail parcel-style bomb. A typewriter used to write the manifesto along with a handwritten copy of the manifesto and lots of books and bomb making materials filled the rest of the small cabin. So I found this interesting that he's done everything he can to avoid modern technology, but 
he obviously loves his printed books that were printed with modern technology and he has to use a typewriter and my guess is as much as actually typewriters can be traced back to a source or at least to make a model of typewriters often but sometimes right down to individualized characteristics of the keys that are striking the paper it's going to be more difficult to trace a typewriter than it is to do a handwriting comparison or he's worried somebody's going to see his handwriting the typewriter is almost one of those necessary evils for him uh, and i remember seeing the note that was sent to percy wood the letter that told him you're going to re be receiving this book that was typewritten again it's a machine it's technology but it's a it's not a computer it's old technology that's been around for a while and b it's a necessity for him i also couldn't find anything more about the ready-to-go mail parcel style bomb that was referenced in other reports it just said that the, he had bomb making materials there but i clearly read on three or four different articles that that a live bomb was found in his cabin but there was nothing to reference if he had a target in mind or if this was a booby trap situation or you know if it was just a i'll hold on to this for a rainy day when i decide i'm gonna send another mail bomb out so this was just what was what was found in the cabin. The FBI now has more than enough to link Kaczynski to being the Unabomber, and all that was left was the psychological test. Kaczynski's psych test caused quite some controversy. Media accounts ran with stories of Kaczynski's insanity, with sources leaking information to the media that he was of a depraved mind. Allegations would later surface these leaks were orchestrated by Kaczynski's mother and or David to spare Kaczynski the possibility of the death penalty. Although one psychiatrist said Kaczynski suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, another said he was sane but had schizotypal disorder, which made him avoid social interaction. And more mental health professionals who visited him said he showed no sign of mental illness whatsoever and he was declared competent to stand trial. So it's interesting that one psychiatrist is going to say he suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. And then another one's going to say, no, it's schizophrenia, but it's just the type of schizophrenia that makes you avoid other people. And then you're going to have two psychiatrists that are going to say he doesn't have any mental illness whatsoever. So it's kind of all over the board. I don't know if it's just because Kaczynski's so smart that he can manipulate these people or if it's just subjective. So they're looking at different markers when they're doing these evaluations and, and reading into them differently. But ultimately, he's declared competent to stand trial, and on January 21st, 1998, having been deemed fit for trial, federal prosecutors announced they would seek the death penalty. The following day, Kaczynski pled guilty to three counts of murder in the first degree and a slew of bomb-related charges. He later tried to withdraw his plea, and, this with, and it was denied by both the trial courts and the Court of Appeals. As per the plea agreement, Kaczynski was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kaczynski was housed with other federal bombing prisoners to include Raz, uh, Ramsey Yosef and Timothy McVeigh. Kaczynski and McVeigh would have lengthy talks about religion and politics, and he would later say he liked McVeigh, but he felt the Oklahoma City bombing was unnecessarily inhumane. And, you know, this just made me think a little bit when I read this part, as first off, thinking of Kaczynski and, and McVeigh sitting there talking about religion and politics, um, especially because... McVeigh, I mean, I guess I don't know of his intelligence level. I know he was at least a semi-intelligent guy, but he's 99% sure he did not have an IQ of 167. And he kind of seemed a little bit more of like a, a kind of a country guy or whatever, that not less educated guy. And then you've got Kaczynski, who's this doctorate with an IQ of 167, and they're talking about religion and politics. I can only imagine what these guys are talking about, but the point that I think Kaczynski's trying to make here is he said something about even though McVeigh was in the right to be anti-government, especially with what had happened at Ruby Ridge and Waco, the way that he delivered his bomb was inhumane. And this may be because there's the daycare center and so many kids were killed and injured by the indiscriminate bombing, whereas even though Kaczynski's bombs could have and almost did on a couple occasions injure children, he mainly targeted these academics and, and 
what it wasn't like he was sending bombs to daycare centers. So my guess is that was where that comment was coming from. Now, after being diagnosed with late stage cancer on December 14th of 2021, Kaczynski was transferred to a secure medical center in, in North Carolina, and it's reported that he took his own life on June 10th of 2023. Now, some interesting allegations have come up since his arrest that people have discussed. One of them is that some have asserted that Kaczynski could have been the Zodiac killer as he was living in California during the time of the Zodiac killings and sent letters to newspapers and drew bomb diagrams just like the Zodiac. And if I looked at the timeline right, you know, he's arriving out at UC Berkeley in like 67, and then he's quitting in 69, and these are kind of the some of the key years or key areas of time around the Zodiac killings. And some of the stuff does match up in terms of, yeah, both of them wrote to newspapers to kind of, you know, brag about their crimes and talk about why they were doing it, but the Zodiac definitely seemed to be doing it more out of he was getting a either a sexual or just a control type high off of doing these killings and then talking to the media about it. Whereas Kaczynski never really he always had this goal in mind or this focus in mind that his stuff was for this higher purpose, for this war against technology, and that just didn't seem to be didn't seem to match up enough. To me, I mean, the the similarities are interesting for sure, and the, the geographical location of him is interesting for sure, but to me, yeah, there's just not enough there to, to pursue that any further. And then some people also suspect him, uh, he was named as a person of interest in the 1982 Tylenol murders, and that's a case, again, if I do an unsolved uh, podcast, I'll probably dive into sometime. That was several people died from tainted Tylenol in the Chicago area and that was in 1982 now it's hard to follow Kaczynski's timeline of living because it said he was living out in Montana and I think it was 71 but then he was also back in the Chicago area at times because that's where his parents lived and that he worked at that with his brother for a bit there so following his exact life timeline without drawing it out on a chart and having confirmation and where he lived during what years and that being said he's still going to be traveling traveling home maybe for holidays or to visit his family every once in a while just the fact that he's got ties to these areas where these long time very popular unsolved true crime cases occur i think that's just his name just gets brought up just because he's evil genius enough to pull off some of the stuff and not get caught. But I don't think there's really anything there. To clear some things up from part one, so I said that as I went through the research, I was finding, oftentimes finding multiple parts of information. So I was able to verify while doing the research for this that the first bomb, the one that was uh, left in the parking lot, at the University of Illinois Chicago campus and brought to Northwestern, it did have enough postage on it that it could have been mailed to its destination, which was in Troy, New York. So it really was a case where police had to wonder if it was left there and intended to be returned to Northwestern University. He was too afraid to have actually personally mailed this one and was just hoping that if he left it there, somebody else would mail the package for him to New York. And ultimately, it might have been one of those cases where it didn't matter who opened the package. He just wanted that bomb to go off somewhere. Also, I was able to see that the bomb that went off on American Airlines Flight 444, it later said the FBI did say it malfunctioned. So there was enough explosives in there to potentially take down the airplane. But it was another case where the detonator went off, but the bomb explosives themselves did not. So the fire and the smoke and the the detonation from the just the detonator is what caused enough of the issues to bring the plane down. But FBI to this day will say if that bomb had functioned properly, it's likely that that would have been a complete air disaster. So and that might have accounted for the fact that it, it took a while until 
the the flight made that emergency landing. I guess it's possible that the de- the altimeter triggered the small detonation to go off, but it took a while for the fire and smoke to build up enough that it caused the airplane any issues where they decided to make that emergency landing. So again, it's just one of those things when you're doing research for this, you find all these different avenues of information and when you pursue one and eventually you find out maybe you're wrong, I guess there's at least there was a chance in part two to clear up some of that stuff. So so that's going to end the University and Airlines series on the podcast. I realized after this I probably could have made this a three or four part series if I really wanted to dive deeper into all the connections and the crimes and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like it's such a big case as it was and that getting in the weeds doesn't help that much more. It's better just to do a surface analysis of the crimes and the investigation of the suspect. Before I go, hero the story. I know he was kind of controversial the way I presented him, but uh, David Kaczynski, the brother of, of Ted, while there was negative press around him for either whether it be his shadowy approach to the FBI or some of the stuff with his mental illness stuff later with his brother to avoid the death penalty, I can understand why he did what he did. You know, it makes sense because his brother had been a big part of his life, and despite the fact they were estranged at this point he likely would have still had some great memories with with ted from when they grew up together and and got bought that property and spent some time together out there so if something happened to his brother during the rest as a result of david turning him in that's something that david would have had to live with for the rest of his life and this is you know his only sibling so despite the fact that they've had their differences if he's going to have to sit there every day and there's another ruby ridge situation and his brother's involved or heaven forbid a, a an agent is shot and killed on um, the approach to the cabin and then ted blows himself up david has to think for the rest of his life that even though he's not directly responsible he's indirectly responsible for that agent being killed so it's a lot to live with if things go bad so i don't fault him at all for the way that he approached things and the fbi did give david and his wife the one million dollar reward even though they refused to take take it and but the fbi refused to not give it to them so ultimately dave and his wife immediately placed the money into a fund for the victims and surviving family members of the fatal bombings so not only was he not looking for anything the fbi for his troubles even though his name was leaked and he wasn't anonymous like he had hoped and he's going to get this million dollars and a lot of people would have just been fine i'll get you know used to buy a cabin or a really nice boat or some cars or something like that he wanted nothing to do with that from the very beginning and when they finally forced it upon him he found a much better use for that money and donated it all to the victim so it's clear that without david's help kaczynski likely would have continued his deadly bombing spree for years and david saved countless lives in the process so that's it thank you for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at truebluecrimeproductions That's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.